This is The Lack with Nina Power and Benjamin Studebaker. Today we're doing Saltburn, a new film, and I will kick us off. Some films begin as genre fair and become something more. Pig is the example we love to return to, a film that begins like John Wick but develops into something profound. In Saltburn, things go the opposite direction. We begin with a film that seems to have something to say, only to discover that it seeks only to be a serviceable murder mystery. I have never particularly cared for murder mysteries, even those that are reasonably well made. I didn't even like Knives Out. Murder is not a very interesting or realistic way to solve most problems. Most murders are committed foolishly in moments of passion or in wars between criminal gangs. Premeditated murder is quite rare, especially in the UK, a country where the murder rate is just one-fifth that of the United States. Yet murder mysteries are so often set in old-world mansions, precisely the kinds of places where murder almost never happens. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The film stars Barry Keon as Oliver Quick, a middle-class boy from Northern England. In the film, his provincial accent makes him uncool at Oxford. Unwilling to stick to his own kind, Oliver is bent on getting in with the posh kids. So he contrives to lend his bike to one of those posh kids. From there, a friendship builds, and Oliver is, inv is eventually invited to stay at the posh boy's mansion over the summer. There we discover that the posh boy's family regularly have long-term guests. These guests are kept around as charity cases. They have fallen on hard times or have no families to which they might return. When the Posh family tires of their guests, they contrive some excuse to send them away. The guests try very hard to find a way to stay in the house. They get competitive with one another. Oliver has a lot of trouble from an American. They view each other as rivals for the family's affection, and they scheme against each other continuously. Eventually, the American is sent away. But then Oliver discovers that the posh boy has arranged for them to take a trip to visit Oliver's parents in the north. You see, Oliver led the posh boy to believe that he comes from a desperately poor family. He said his father was dead, that his mother was a drug addict. When the posh boy discovers that Oliver's father is alive, that his parents are middle class, he feels betrayed. He plans to have Oliver sent away. But before he can do this, he turns up dead. The posh boy's posh sister views Oliver with suspicion. Shortly after she expresses these suspicions to Oliver, she turns up dead as well. With both children dead, the posh boy's posh father sends Oliver away. But after the posh father dies, the posh mother bumps into Oliver and invites him to return to the mansion. A short time later, she gets sick and dies, leaving the mansion to Oliver. As you might expect, Oliver has been directly involved in getting rid of the American and in the series of deaths. He's killed everyone in the family so he can have the mansion for himself. How shocking! There's also a lot of unusual sexual activity, if you're the sort of person who has a taste for such things. The bit of the film that is interesting is the competition for the favor of the rich. Certainly this occurs at scale, as many members of the professional class compete with one another for sources of funding by portraying themselves as morally deserving victims. The rich like to feel charitable and generous, and they like to feel that the beneficiaries of their generosity are deserving. And so the would-be recipients play the roles they are expected to play. They act like the victims the rich wish them to be. 
and, wherever possible, they disrupt the victim narratives of their rivals so that they can keep all the wealth and opulence for themselves. But this point should be obvious to us all by 2023. The film doesn't ultimately do anything with it. I also didn't think much of its depiction of the posh kids at Oxford, most of whom are frightfully embarrassed by their family money and go to great lengths to downplay it. Ultimately, I think this film deserves Helen's critique of Triangle of Sadness. It's much more interested in making fun of the rich than it is in saying anything substantive about class. It coldly dehumanizes its characters to make them safe for mockery and schadenfreude. I defended Triangle of Sadness, and still do. I thought that film had more to say, but I can't defend Saltburn. In fact, I'd go so far as to say I feel cheated by it. It's the anti-pig. It's pulpy genre fare made up to look art house. But when we combine high art with low art, we ought to be trying to popularize high art. Working people deserve access to the very best art and culture human beings are capable of creating. They should not only be able to view this art, there should be a meaningful possibility for them to become artists in the fullest sense of that word. That is not what they're trying to do with Saltburn. Saltburn is a venal effort to pass low art off as high art. It is not an attempt to share what is great with the many. It is an attempt to diminish what is great by infecting it with what is small. It is a fundamentally deceitful picture. It's so hard to make films. Films cost an enormous amount of money, and under capitalist conditions, it's very hard to get anything made, much less anything good. Great films are better than they have any right to be, and it's amazing that they come into being. But Saltburn is incredibly much worse than it should have been, and for that I condemn it unreservedly. <laughs> but maybe Nina liked it. Let's find out if she did. <laughs> I, I love your sort of moral arbiter position, you know, like the sort of, you remind me of the, the person who must surely exist in the UK with our charity laws. So we have this situation where people, you can imagine, make lots of amateur art and then they leave it to the state in perpetuity and they pay, they set up a trust and, you know, thinking that their art is worth so much money. But then the state, of course, has to make a decision about the value of art um, which it finds it can't really on its own basis because the law can't arbitrate on matters of taste, but they have to employ basically experts from the auction houses and so on. And they they actually destroy an enormous amount of bad art every year that's left to them <laughs> by slightly delusional <laughs> citizens. And I always thought that would be like the most fun job ever just to stand atop a pyre of like amateur watercolors and... Um, Anyway, you reminded me a little of this character, you know, this person in this role, judging judging the art. Well, I suppose the person burning it isn't the one judging it, but <laughs> the judgment of flames. Um, yeah, so Saltburn, I, I suppose I, I picked this not because I had any particular inkling, although I, and I didn't even realise it was by um, Emerald Fenning, I think her name is, is that her name? Uh, who directed um, Promising young woman which i actually reviewed for the telegraph i didn't i didn't realize it was the same director and that was a, a very flawed film in many ways it was a kind of an attempt to capitalize on me too and a, and a, make a kind of female vengeance film but it didn't really work um i i would say uh, in terms of that kind of feminist uh i don't know uh, feminist violence i guess it was trying to defend 
this this film yeah i mean i watched it as a stream on amazon or whatever but it was in the cinema of course like you you already mentioned knives out and and it has a sort of parallel with this kind of re reheated murder mystery genre which which i actually do have a lot of affection for i have to say i don't know if this is a female thing that people often talk about how women love you know true crime and and murder and there's some kind of weird thing about how much women love this sort of thing but it and it's true that very many of the great crime writers um are and were women i mean agatha christie pd james um i mean jk rowling has a hand in it i actually like her detective novels um you know it's and and so on many 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 figures and i i was very very into poirot and these kind of with david suchet it was a big deal and inspector morse and and touch of frost and prime suspect and so i i have probably much more tolerance for murder mysteries and i think it's i i, I take your point the murder in and of itself is, isn't very interesting but of course what's going on in these films and it, they often are of course about class and in Poirot, for example, somebody in the Agatha Christie, someone has been, some rich person has been murdered in sort of strange circumstances. And it, But it's all about the sort of interactions. It's all about the sort of deduction. It's all about the figure of the detective. And usually they're kind of pathologically sad or flawed or something terrible has happened to them. So they, they themselves take on the kind of the tragic aspect and, you know, there's usually some romance. Anyway, so yes, I, I agree that this sort of fits into that recent, um, I guess, popularity of rich people being murdered and people trying to find out who done it. Um, it did remind me, what I, I'll start with what I did like about it. It's very visually sumptuous. It reminded me of this period of British filmmaking, which we haven't seen for some time in the 90s and early 2000s, which would include films like Shallow Grave and Morven Kalla in particular, which was an excellent film, um, it, where there was a real energy. And I, I, there's almost like a kind of euphoric rave type energy. I mean, in fact, one of the, the most sort of um, Dionysian scenes is a birthday party with hundreds of people at the, the manor house where people are taking drugs and sort of engaging in dancing and sexual behavior and that you know that it has a and they're all dressed in shakespearean costumes around midsummer night's dream and this is this is a vision of a kind of britain that is euphoric and and rave like and there were that that had a huge effect in the 90s and 2000s so i read those scenes as a kind of homage to that slightly earlier period of filmmaking and there was something about the energy and also even the, the transgressive sexual acts that reminded me of that period. And in, it, in that sense, I thought, oh, this is good because it's, you know, it's harking back to recent past where there was this kind of like real get up and go. And, and also like, you know, but often it was horrible. Like it was, it was nasty. It was transgressive. It was edgy. It was, you know, so there's elements of that. And I, I thought I could see what she was doing in that regard. Um, but I think um, it, it obviously is quite derivative of many people have pointed out of, um, in, well, first of all, Pasolini's theorem. So the Terence Stamp character as this kind of uh, interloper. I mean, Pasolini's theorem is probably my favourite film of all time, so I'm not going to compare them 
positively, but there is something just at the level of the plot about, you know, and lots of French films are like this. I've, I've expanded my theory of French films where you always have the visitor, whether it's the animal or something that disrupts the bourgeois house. So you have the kind of version of that. But really the main um, derivation for this film is 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 the Ripley character. So Patricia Highsmith's most famous character. So, and I've read all of Patricia Highsmith and I, I love Highsmith. She's probably in my top three authors. Ripley, uh, like I say, is her most successful character. He's the one that she writes five or six novels around. Um, but all of her other novels are fantastic. Um, you know, many of them are superb. And what's brilliant about Highsmith and what isn't carried out here correctly is the psychological motivation so Ripley is is an amazing figure because what he points to existentially is the fact that we are all self-inventions so so in this film in Saltburn we have the idea of of the desire to reinvent oneself and this is actually quite a familiar experience like I think probably anyone who's gone to university will remember moments where you maybe tried to sort of be a kind of character that you weren't necessarily that yet or you know I remember slightly lying about my middle name to make it sound cooler or something you know so I think there is this kind of desire obviously Oliver in the film takes it to extraordinary lengths to you know <laughs> the idea of reinventing oneself entirely but I, I do think there is this moment and I've, I felt quite moved but in the opening scenes by this sort of struggle for identity um, amongst students who are moving away for the first time. And of course, it's true that people who have money and come from wealthy backgrounds and have gone to private schools appear at least to have a superficial belonging in that world already. And, you know, even going to Warwick, uh, you know, and I encountered a lot of private school people for the first time. It, there, w there was this kind of dissonance or like, you know, incomprehension really of how these people were, like what their backgrounds were, how they could be so confident and, and all of these things. So I, I, I actually did really relate to the first <laughs> sort of 20 minutes where he arrives at Oxford. And indeed, he's portrayed as this, this, this boy who dresses sort of badly or, you know, unesthetically or cheaply and... Is, is also over-prepared. And I thought that was very interesting, the opening scene where he goes for this tutorial, one of the early scenes, and it turns out that he's done all the reading on the reading list. And I did things like that <laughs> when I went to university. And it, it really surprised me that people hadn't because I sort of thought you had to. I thought that's what university was. You know, it was... And then the tutor in the film says, oh, I, I haven't read half the things on that book. You know, how can you have read 50 books, including the King James Bible? So we get the sense that this this Oliver guy is extremely determined um, and dedicated and, and not at all stupid, of course, you know, that maybe his isolation, as we later find out, he's a very unpopular boy from his parents, you know, has actually driven him to be something of an academic genius almost in some ways. And he's kind of resented also by the posh people who are just there because that's what you do. You go to Oxford and you're interested in the girls and the balls and the champagne and being in this beautiful city and all of those things. So that, I thought that was that was promising. The thing about Ripley, to go back to the main obvious comparison, Ripley and Highsmith does this beautifully presents this this question of what does it mean actually to be a cultured person? So Ripley 
in order to emulate the rich people, this guy Dickie Greenleaf that he ends up hanging around with, very much similar to the, the rich boy in this film, ends up kind of copying all of their cultural um, um, attributes, if you like. So he listens to all the same music. He listens to the jazz. He learns how to play the piano. He reads all the art books so he can talk about all of these great aesthetic things. And the obvious question is, given that by the end of his studying of all those things, that, that Ripley himself actually now possesses all of that cultural knowledge in, re in reality, even though he's doing it in order to get closer to the rich people, what's, to, what's really the difference between the cultured Ripley and the forgery Ripley? And so Ripley is, is always, he ends up being a forger in the, in the novels as well. Um, and it really presents this question of to what extent are we the natural inheritors of a particular place and a particular character and a particular personality, particularly when we're shifting between classes or that we're moving from, you know, where we live to go to university and to become a new person, especially when perhaps your friends and your peers aren't going to university with you. You know, you're sort of more on your own. You have to kind of become a self-made uh, individual you know, what really is the difference? Is there some ineffable thing called class or culture that is not just money, right? Because of course, being nouveau riche is no protection from being vulgar, right? So, you know, and, and clearly Oliver Quick in this film, ultimately I think it, it it's disappointing because his psychological motivations, and they try to make it clever. They try to say, they try to do all this stuff about whether he was actually in love with the posh boy, um, but they don't, they don't put the other part of that, which is, well, did he want to be him? Right? Like, and if you, you know, there is, there is a kind of tension sometimes between loving someone and wanting to be like them, but they didn't really explore that. They just kind of put this thing about love, like to make it a bit edgy. Oh, is there some sort of homosexual thing? You know, it was, it was a bit cheap to be honest. And then if the psychological motivation all along was simply to own Saltburn and to, to sort of pretend that he was part of some sort of landed gentry or something like this. It it didn't really explain actually his relations, sexual or otherwise, with the family members. If if they were merely a means to an end, rather than rather than a group of people that he wanted to integrate himself into, um, which in which case you wouldn't want to murder those people, those people that you wanted to become like, because you were still learning from them, apart from anything else, right? You would be emulating their manners, their gestures, their, you know, there's a sense in which they they kind of perhaps shouldn't have made this a murder mystery. <laughs> you know, that, that actually in a high Smithian way, it would be so much more interesting to present this character as someone more obscure, even if we did then find out about his background, that it was it was not so deprived, that it was actually just a kind of, you know, average suburban middle class life with both parents alive and both parents caring for him and wondering how he was. And even if they'd kept that in, I think to leave more ambiguity about the questions of rivalry and personhood and what it means to be cultured and what it means to be desired. You know, a lot of the film is about how desirable, I can't even remember his silly name, the, sorry, the, the, the posh boy. Um, anyway, that, 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 his, that, that it's about him being desired, right? So there are scenes where Oliver is watching this guy get it on with women who, who are all sort of throwing themselves 
at this guy, partly because he's rich, presumably, but also because of the way he carries himself, you know, with this confidence, with this ease. I, I sometimes thought when I was teaching very posh people about who can afford to be pleasant, you know, this is the phrase that occurred to me. And there's a certain way in which people who are very comfortable can act in a way that is actually extremely delightful and, and even seductive, you know, like, because they can afford to be nice. You know, there's a sort of pleasantness that sometimes attends <laughs> the very wealthy. Um, and, you know, this guy has this this kind of charm. And this is why partly he's seduced by Oliver or Oliver's story to some extent. You know, and like you said, Benjamin, the idea of philanthropy and pity and rich people loving to seem kind and generous. And I, I've met I've met people <laughs> like that, too. And. Yeah, so I, I, I don't know. It was a very mixed bag. It, it had some very visually seductive moments. Um, the psychology was badly, badly done. Some of the acting was very good. I mean, we we actually saw the main actor in the Banshees of Inishirin recently playing a kind of slow um, character, I guess, um, who ultimately drowns in mysterious circumstances. I mean, there were moments I thought that maybe the actor was, I, I don't know, a bit inconsistent, right? Because on the one hand, he's sometimes presented as this very cool, calculating person who behind the scenes is manipulating people and threatening them and is very eloquent. And then at others, he sounds almost kind of dim, even though you know that he's obviously very clever because he would have had to be to get into Oxford, you know, at, at least from his background, if you see what I mean, like without having any sort of necessary class or cultural route there and the fact that he's done all the reading and that he's prepares for every seminar. So there is, it, he's a little bit inconsistent, but I, I do think he's quite well done. The mother is very well done. Some of the strange family members are quite well done. Like they are reminiscent of a particular set of characters that you do encounter if you meet the bohemian bourgeois, bourgeoisie in in Britain, and I have met some of these people, so there is a sort of familiarity there. So, I, yeah, it it was an uneven, I would say, an ultimately disappointing experience. It, they, they try to solve the the mystery, as it were, very quickly at the end with the sort of five flashback scenes that, that tell you what has actually happened. And, and like I said, I, I think if they'd left open this question of, of, of emulation and copying and, and rivalry and the forgery and the existential stuff that, that really Highsmith does wonderfully, um, then it would have been a superior film. But it was it was okay for a Christmas holiday thing. Yeah, I think the fact that it's well shot and well acted, both of which are true, only make it worse. <laughs> only contributes to my sense of missed opportunity, what a waste. Uh, and that's what burns me up about this film, how much better it should have been than what it is. Yeah, I, 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 take, I take your point. But but it sounds also, I mean, you don't like this genre particularly, you know, the, the, the kind that's of true. The murder mystery. I mean, do you see what I'm saying about that kind of energy of those sorts of 90s films like Trainspotting and, and Shallow Grave? And I don't know if you've seen Morven Color. It, it should be a film we do, actually. It's very, very good film but that kind of energy and that kind of like you know edginess somehow yes though i think in those films you care more about the characters than you are inspired to do with this one and this is where i see this film as as a 
having all of the negative traits that are sometimes thrown at films like Parasite or Triangle of Sadness, I think somewhat unfairly in those cases. But this film makes me see those critiques in a way that I was more resistant to before, because in this film, I do think we straightforwardly are never made to like anybody in the film. Yeah, I, I don't generally understand that problem that people sometimes have about likability. And I mean, partly I think because like I love Arrested Development and 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 shows that basically where all the characters are profoundly unlikable, it sort of explicitly. And I, I sort of really enjoy that kind of level of cruelty. Uh, also the Nathan Fielder, I think we're going to discuss the curse at some point. But, you know, these these are shows where it's very hard to like <laughs> the characters, you know, that they, they are excruciatingly painful. I mean, in Arrested Development... I suppose the character you might most identify with is the, is the main, the father, but but he is is completely flawed um, much of the time as well, and and acts out horribly. So, but do do you, you don't necessarily mean that straightforwardly? But yeah, I don't mean that you always have to like characters in movies or shows. I mean that in this film, the coldness that is manufactured is for the purposes of making you tolerate things that as a viewer, you probably shouldn't tolerate. Okay. Uh, give me an example. Probably like you probably shouldn't feel that a movie that plays itself off as this serious in this art house, you probably shouldn't feel this level of uh, revulsion to every character in a film that's seems to be trying to be a serious picture. Like arrested development is straightforwardly mm. a comedy. And it's very funny. And I, I quite like Arrested Development. I quite like Seinfeld or Curb Your mm, Enthusiasm. Mm. A lot of these shows that have this kind of level of remove. Uh, Nathan Fielder, where the, the show isn't really about the characters. The show is about social norms. It's about you know, mores. It's uh, Here, it's as if we're watching a film that's really about a relationship between two men. It's as if we're watching a film that's about this particular uh, person, this uh, this guy who is pretending to be somebody else. Yes, uh, an example of something that is, is much more convincingly done in that regard would be, say, The Great Gatsby, mm-hmm. where you have a character who reinvents himself, you know, creates uh, a new uh, life for himself. And yet it's not done in a completely unsympathetic way. So you can kind of imagine, you know, why would someone go and do all of that? And a lot of people, I think, have been in in Gatsby's situation of trying to make a relationship work and having it not work for reasons that you feel are just social and not really inherent to your dynamic with the person and and trying desperately in some way to overcome it. There's something very human about Gatsby. But here, there are multiple points where the film goes out of its way to dehumanize its characters, you know, where the rich people are them are calling themselves cold-blooded, where uh, he is he is being uh, the, the middle-class kid who's pretending to be a poor kid is fingered as, you know, you're a, a revolting person that I feel very uncomfortable around. You know, the characters are deliberately uh, framing one another as monstrous. It's not just a kind of detachment that allows you to laugh like you get in Arrested Development. It's uh, a dehumanizing so that you will enjoy the suffering of human beings. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I do wonder if it is not really suppose, pitching itself as a black comedy, though. I mean, I, th- I, d- I don't think it's actually supposed to be taken as seriously as 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 all that or as, as an art house thing. I think maybe because it taps into the detective 
novel, which maybe British people would be more familiar with, you know, that, that it that it's quite camp, actually. I mean, of course, there are sort of references to like um, Evelyn Waugh and and the teddy bear and, you know, the Bryce had revisited and, and, you know, all these internal fantasies of Britain itself, I suppose. And and also a kind of class revenge as well, like, but 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 you're right that I, it would have it would have been a more successful film if Oliver was more comprehensible. I think to the the vast majority of normal people, <laughs> and not a murderer. It, it is a camp film, but it's a camp film that it that acts like it's not camp. That starts yeah. off pretending that it's trying to say something serious, and that's what makes it really. I don't mind a film that's just straightforwardly a bit silly or straightforwardly a, a piece of genre fair, even if it's not my genre, I could say, well, this is a good example of that genre, not my genre, mm-hmm. but it's a good example. My issue with this is that I really do think that this film was acting like an art house movie. It was shot like an art house mm-hmm. movie. It has the acting quality and the kind of actors you'd expect to see in an art house movie. Uh, it, to me, it, it really Trojan horsed its way in. Okay. To a, a conversational space it has no business being in. It should not be getting reviewed in such a serious way by so many people. It should be treated as a as a pulpier kind of thing. I, this film is getting you know, roughly the same kind of attention that the holdovers got. You know, it's a it, it's not nearly the same kind of film as the holdovers. You know, that's a Christmas film that's got stuff going on in it. This yeah. is this is something else. Yeah. It should have just been done straightforwardly campy, and but it didn't want to just embrace that. It wanted to get credit for being something else, something beyond that. It wants to be recognized as more than just what it is. And that's what that's what bothers me about it. It is not willing to accept that it's just uh, you know, really a different version of you know, Murder on the Orient Express, mm-hmm. which is really what it is. Yeah, I, I mean, I do take your point. And in that sense, it's trying to tap into precisely that um, ten- trend that you identified with Triangle of Sadness. And films that, the films that are ostensibly about the ultra-rich, we could also talk about The White Lotus, which I watched both seasons of, which was really acid. I mean, that was a properly bitchy show um, and all the better for it. But it was consistent in that way. Right. And again, this kind of question of likability and the ultra rich. And but yes, but you're right. I think it was striving for some deeper struggling to find some deeper point about class that it it couldn't make, actually. It's leveraging prestige film tropes for genre fair. Yes. To trick people into thinking it's a prestige film to get more attention and get more praise. And that's deceitful. It's a (laughs) deceitful film. It's lying to us. Yes. Okay. I, I'm I'm one over to your succinct moral demolition. I do agree because I cannot make a defense of it as insightful on these points. I think there are flashes, particularly at the beginning. I, I was intrigued by the tutorial and the, the you know the, the entry into Oxford and, and, and how people some people are comfortable there already because that's what they do and that's what they, they would have always done. And those people who are better prepared but much less socially well situated. You know, and I think I think yeah, that is it, a a thing. <laughs> It makes you think of all of this acclaimed material. I mean, we've we've tossed out. You know, I've, I've said Gatsby. I've said, you know, uh, 
triangle of sadness. You know, we've we've talked about you know Parasite films that have been mm-hmm. you know, nominated for awards, taken very very seriously. Films that many people think are are great. It doesn't belong in that discussion. It shouldn't be mentioned alongside those films. But it put all those films in our head at the <laughs> beginning. Yeah. With the way that it was shot, with the people who were in it, with the way that it tried to come off tonally. Yes. I mean, it's it, deceitful. It's just, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, yeah. I mean, it also came out around Christmas, which was obviously deliberate. I mean, none of these things are accidental, right? So I think probably it was to be treated as this sort of new girl where you sort of melted all these chocolates together and or something. And, you know, they all remind but, but there you. Are, there are some, you know, serious minded Christmas films that you yeah. know, win awards. You know, the holdovers came out at the same time of year. And it's better than this movie by quite I a distance. I haven't seen the holdovers. I apologize. I'm, I'm ill-informed. Maybe we should do the holdovers. That that one was good. Can, I like that Can we one. do it next Christmas? Is it a Christmas film? It's a little bit of a Christmas film, yeah. Christmas is yeah. over. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it should wait until next year. But I mean- Remind us, guys. Yes. Um, so, in ter- but in terms of what goes wrong, because I, I do want to explore this point a bit more with you, which is about the idea of, of self-invention. And, you know, I think, I, I mean, I definitely had these moments when I went to university of, of trying to, like, in retrospect, you know, assume a persona or try to fit in or like, I don't know, even to the extent of sort of slightly fibbing about things you know or exaggerating certain things you know not not with any aim in mind other than i suppose just trying to fit in i guess well oftentimes you imagine you're doing it for someone else's convenience like i can remember when i was in undergrad having the dilemma i'm from northwest indiana which is within the chicago you know metropolitan area but it's certainly not chicago and anyone who's from chicago would not regard it as being from chicago but when i was in the uk and people asked me where in the united states i was from and knowing full well that most people in the uk have only been to new york florida and california i had this dilemma do i say i'm from chicago or do i say i'm from indiana Mm -hmm. and which you know gives people a more accurate picture of who i am Oh uh, yeah. Well, I mean, had you said it to me, I would be like, "Ah, oh, Indiana, like Erie, Indiana," because that show was on all the time <laughs> when I was younger, um, and that was amazing because I was really into the kind of Fortean, uh, like mysterious, supernatural things, and the boy, and it was really cute, and it was set in Indiana, and so I would have had some reference point, probably not a very accurate one, but I would have been like, "Oh, that's where all the weird stuff happens." Yeah, that's one of the cool things about you. You actually have some kind of reference point for Indiana. <laughs> but that's but, you know, it. Also, there's a, there's a little bit of a, uh, which way do I want to come off? Yeah. And, you know, Barack Obama's president and he's from Chicago. And do you want to come off as, as being from where the president is from and, and stupid shit like that? You know, there's a little bit of that that goes on in answering that kind of question. And one of the ways in which I mark my maturity is that I no longer even consider saying I'm from Chicago when people <laughs> ask me where I'm from, because I'm not from Chicago. Yeah. No, I mean, I guess I'm I, not. yeah, that's true. You're not. I mean, I would say yeah. that I'm from Wiltshire and I, people wouldn't necessarily know where Wiltshire was. And I would say, well, Stonehenge, you know, because everybody's heard of Stonehenge. Yeah, now if people say they don't know where I'm from, I go about an hour southeast of Chicago. Yeah, yeah. But I think, I don't know, even things about, 
like class and fitting it, you know, like I'm middle class, but I went to a comprehensive school, you know, and I grew up in a, you know, my school was in a small town. I grew up in a tiny village and my parents worked their whole lives. They, well, my mum worked as a secretary. My dad worked for the NHS as a dentist. They were very, you know, they are very hardworking people. They're retired now, but they, they, they're very, they're very solidly middle class. Right. And, and I didn't have really access to what I imagined were upper class things. And I didn't really know what they were. I mean, cause of course I was reading novels. It wasn't like there were no books at home. You know, it, I had access to culture to some extent, but I think I had this Did idea. Did you try to? Did you try to befriend a bunch of upper class well, people when, when you were I did, Well, in, on my philosophy and literature degree, the vast majority of people on that course were from private schools. So I think because of the nature of the degree, the first degree, because it was like one of those things that was very appealing to a certain kind of private school woman. So it was dominated by women. And my best friend, who's still I'm very good friends with, uh, was I met there, was doing history of art, and she had a scholar had had a scholarship to a private school. I mean, her background was actually quite rough, but some you know through various mechanisms she she'd gone to a private school, and I hadn't even heard of history of art <laughs> like as a subject. I didn't know you could study it. So there were there, I was definitely kind of rough around the edges, and this remember this is before the internet. So eighteen in ninety seven, I mean, just the internet was just coming in, but it was you know it was a completely different. It wasn't a thing like it is now, right? Like you just couldn't you know. Yeah. So you didn't necessarily have a kind of sense of certain things. I don't know how to explain it, but basically your your experience was based around whatever was in your parents' house or like if someone had randomly told you about a band or whatever, or you'd spent some time reading music magazines or any, I don't know. There wasn't kind of access necessarily. Like I didn't even know what Warwick was like, like until I went there, like, because there's nothing you could really find out. You could read the prospectus, like, but that didn't tell you anything. So yeah, back then in the 20th century, right? There was the mass culture that was on the television yeah. that everybody had some awareness of, and then there's anything that you'd have to get a magazine to find out about is is hopelessly parochial. Right. So anything that would be on the internet but not on TV would have been in the magazine space, and therefore extremely sectorial in its its cultural character. Right. And one of the things that's been weird about the internet is that so many things that were in magazines or were in comic books or what have you have been mainstreamed through the internet and turned into uh, parts of mass culture. Yeah. And and so for example, you know, the fact that I never heard of history of art as a subject or a discipline I guess wouldn't have been that weird, but I I was just like, oh wow, like this is a thing that you can study. And so I I'm sure that I felt a bit insecure, definitely, like around people who seemed to be more confident, although it wasn't necessarily earned in terms of that academic <laughs> hard work. And I maybe I really related to, to Oliver in this first scene in the tutorial because like I was very much like that in seminars. And, you know, I, I, I thought that going to university was like the most um, elevating thing that could happen you know it was a real honor that the the local authority would pay for you to go and that 
you know, I'd been picked to go, you know, that it was, it's a very different way of understanding it, I think. And yeah, so I, and I just, I, it didn't, it wouldn't have occurred to me not to work, <laughs> like not to prepare <laughs> or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I think so. So I suppose there was the, again, a, the hint of a, a good film in the sense of this, had it really stuck with exploring this desire for for self creation or to re or self reinvention, you know, to 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 what what it would mean to break with your background or to to become a different person to some degree. I you know that that would have been interesting, and I think the actor could have pulled it off. Like he was quite a good Ripley type character, um, that kind of hidden depths and secret knowledge. But yeah, the, it's yeah. the writing that fails. It's not him as an actor. Yeah. He does a very nice job as an actor, but the writing is inconsistent and therefore the character is inconsistent. I don't think that he, uh, it's his acting that makes the character inconsistent. No, 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 you're right. I mean, it's just, he just kind of flips too wildly between this kind of, you know, Machiavellian threatening person with a plan and then this kind of, I don't know, seemingly naive rival or there's so many of these you know beautiful films well acted but the writing isn't good enough uh, and the writing is just is just okay and people try to pass off these underwritten films that are beautifully shot well directed well acted uh, as if they're great films this goes on all the time now because the writing is consistently the thing that falls short in so many of these pictures you know all the christopher nolan films it's the writing that falls short and some people can ignore the writing. Some people can be taken in by mm. the images and the sensuousness and they can ignore the writing. I can't ignore the writing in movies. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And some of the speeches that were sort of faux profound, whether it was Felix, I remembered his name, the, the posh boy, or Oliver or any of the other characters, they didn't quite hit the mark. You know, they, they had the, the, the appearance of profundity or humor or insight. Yeah, they can create this tonal atmosphere around yeah. the speech that makes it sound like it's the kind of speech that would be delivered in a great art house movie that would hit you in some way. Mm. Uh, but yeah, that's I, not I agree. what's going on here. And uh, I mean, the, you know, during the holiday period, I, I went back and watched um, Paul and Pressburger's Black Narcissus, which is an incredible film from 1940, the 1940s. I can't remember which year. But, you know, not only is it just sort of sumptuous and surreal and, and set in this nunnery in the Himalayas, um, but the writing, yeah, the writing, it's all about the writing and the dialogue and the, the relation between the characters. And it's just a different ballpark. It's just a different thing. You know, it, it's sublime where this is superficial. Yeah. But this movie made you think of that movie. Yes, I again. I mean, sort of, only because I was watching them side by side. But as a point of comparison, yeah. obviously, Saltburn right. flops horribly. But you're right. I mean, let's. We should identify this. I mean, you already have, but to. I wonder if we can give it a name. This kind of. Um, it, it's kind of a series of like illusions, or you know, it, it's an illusion of illusion. <laughs> you know, so you have this sort of yes feeling that you're in the. The, the the constellation of great better films that this sort of is a bit like and it and it's um yes it shines in their greater glory it steals their 
honor. No, what's what's that phrase that people use? Um, yeah, it, it's uh, it does steal their honor. It's uh, yeah, there is an expression. Do I mean? Oh, is it fa- lipstick on a pig? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but is something like oh, stolen valor? Stolen valor is the word. Yeah, stolen valor. That's right. Yeah, but the fact that yes, for the fact that people are, are talking about Ripley and Highsmith and and Evelyn Waugh and Gatsby and uh, Pasolini, even for goodness' sake, um, yeah, like <laughs> it's clever or it's, or it's cunning. But you said it's malevolent, or maybe not. That wasn't quite the right word. But deceitful, deceitful, deceitful. Mendacious. It's about a deceitful character. Yes. Is it is it mendacious? What's the difference between mendacious and deceitful? Well, I think mendacious is is uh, deceitful is is definitely not telling the truth. Yeah. But I I think mendacious has a little bit of of uh, something extra in it. Is it more actively lying? Maybe. I mean, to say that you have the mendacity yeah. to do something is to suggest almost a, a kind of uh, you have the the gall or the mm. the willingness to do it blatantly. I think something that's mendacious is is blatant and in your face and look, I can do this mm. and I can get away with it. Whereas deceitful is just lying. Yeah. Okay. First, so and I don't know enough to to say whether this was mendacious. Mm. But I do think the the effect is deceitful, whether that was intended, whether that was deliberately capitalized upon by the person who made this film. Though you made the argument earlier that she's uh, capitalized upon stuff like Me Too. Yeah. And this is a strategy. And Adorno talked about this with relation to protest music during the Vietnam War, capitalizing upon progressive sentiment to wring money and praise for something uh, that is not that good. Yeah, okay. I mean, I think that's a really, really good argument. So we could say precisely this stolen valor of these films about class because, you know, there have been these great films about class and perhaps particularly about the ultra-rich ultra, ultra rich, um, and that it is tapping into that. In a, in a, yeah, I think Adorno would say that almost any attempt to just, you know, cover class in a sentimental way on film in some way capitalizes upon the class exploitation. But maybe we can make a distinction between some films which treat this material in a way that justifies the money that is made uh, and other films that fail to do a decent enough job to be in even partially excused for it. Yes. I mean, I think, you know, obviously a film, a good film about class from a sort of Adornian point of view would have to, in a way, dialectically... Um, reveal the antagonism, like through. So, yeah. so it wouldn't. It didn't. It wouldn't even need to be a film about class in that banal representational way, right? Like, oh, right. here's a posh person and here's a poor. But you know, like, no, that's not what a, a cinematic depiction of class that would be meaningful would would be like, right? So, yes, yeah. I mean, if it's even possible to do that, and I think yeah. Adorno is. Part of that debate, in part because he was not at all convinced that it was possible for film to have that kind of effect at a time when many people were arguing that film could have a revolutionary impetus yeah. to it because it was much more popular and much more accessible than I think say, Jean-Luc, Jean-Luc Godard has a good stab at it in a, several of his films, like British Sounds, I think is a very interesting film about manufacturing and class. 
in Britain, and it's interesting that he filmed it in Britain. I think La Chinoise is a good film about the May 68 and the kind of, you know, the Maoist students and, you know, and it's not done in a kind of straightforward way. I don't know. There's a, there's a lot in Goddard I think would be, might qualify as an, at least a serious attempt to depict antagonism. Yeah, certainly he would be one of the leading figures who thought it could be done. And I think the effort to make revolution through, through film, on the one hand, it has not been successful. There has not been revolution as a consequence of film. But on the other hand, the attempts to do it have often produced films that are intellectually very stimulating, that are artistically very valuable. Uh, but, you know, of course, there's this whole critique of, of art itself as something which necessarily comes out of capitalist antagonism and therefore is always in some ways circumscribed by the way in which it is produced. Uh, but if we took that critique all the way to a conclusion where all art is just uh, is just participating in exploitation, then you can't yeah. do anything because everything in society is exploitation. There is there is one Godard film, and I forget which, but the credits have him signing the checks for all of the actors and perform uh, and the the people who worked on the film. So it's basically like trying to lay bare the. The material reality of making a film, you know, like where some people get paid more, like the lead actor, whatever. And it's actually quite an interesting thing to do. I can't, I, I forget which credits, but it's, you know, rather than just have the names, he, he has the checks, <laughs> um, which is kind of, you know, something. And yeah, but I, I think it's, it's interesting just to go back to a small point you made actually about the sort of, the, there's several scenes of sort of sexual transgression or, or of, of scenes where, um, I don't know, not just the Oliver character, but others maybe are kind of engaged in like maybe slightly outre or, or kind of vaguely homosexual or there's a kind of sort of bohemian bourgeois quality. Like they, they hang out together naked at one point for no real reason, just because they can. And, um, <laughs> Obviously, there are kind of transgressions around age, perhaps, like, you know, the fact that the mother could ultimately sort of end up with the, the what would have then been a teenager, you know, like the, the, the class sees no boundaries in that way. And I, I mean, it could be part of just simply part of the, you know, the, the sort of, um, attempt at creating a particular effect like it could be another deceitful move like oh this film is so edgy and transgressive because it has slightly weird scenes that don't really have any explanation like so for example there's a scene where oliver drinks the bathwater of felix they share they share a bathroom in the posh house um after felix has masturbated into the bath right so the the, the idea is that oliver is drinking the last dregs of the water that would contain and you know and of course sort of just objectively well that's a weird thing to do like you know that's that's a bit shocking you know the other great shocking scene i suppose would be the where oliver sort of makes love to the the earth on the freshly um lane grave of felix right so you have this scene where he's kind of writhing around naked on the on the grave and i suppose you know what? What are we? And and another where he he um, has a sort of midnight encounter with the sister, who's sort of this quite crazy um, and and disturbed girl who um, 
and and she's menstruating and he sort of doesn't care. He sort of does this like thing about being a vampire or whatever. And and I suppose you're supposed to think, well, what are you supposed to think? That that his sort of oh, and another where he's <laughs> where he I sort of simultaneously threatens and is sexually active with the the gay boy who's like the the cousin of Felix or something like that, who who is who's actually suspicious of Oliver and has known him through the Oxford thing, but he doesn't like him. Um, but, it, you know, so, so there are these kind of like at least four scenes, I suppose, that are faintly sexually transgressive, all of which involve the main character. Are you supposed to think that sex is just something he uses indifferently towards men and women because his ultimate aim is to get salt burn and to... That's that's what he wants, right? And so this is just a means to an end, right? This sort of faint seduction or threaten, threatening of, of characters. Or is it supposed to reveal his perverse character, you know, like the kind of person who would think that murdering an entire family and stealing their country home is something that would be a good thing to do, is also the kind of person who would sexually transgress because the the drinking of the bathwater doesn't make any sense because it's not actually efficient for him it's, it's, it's this is why the this is why the psychology doesn't work because this could be an act of obsession right like i mean a kind of gross act of obsession but let's say you were completely obsessed with someone to the extent that you thought that their sort of semen strewn bathwater was something that you wanted to drink okay, maybe you could say like, okay, this is evidence of an obsession that you would want to ingest this or something. Um, in which case we could go with the love hypothesis or even the emulation hypothesis. Like this is an absurd way of trying to emulate someone by literally sort of imbibing them or something like that, becoming more like them in some kind of magical way. Um, but it given that it's not really ultimately either, like, because again, the, the film hints at that to make it seem sexy, but it isn't that, right? Like, it it doesn't pursue the love or emulation route. Now, ultimately, these scenes have a commercial function, which is to get people to talk about the film and go, oh my God, there's this scene in Saltburn. You have to go see Saltburn. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, they do these things in Saltburn. That's the actual reason those scenes are in the film. Then there's the various artistic, philosophical bullshit that people throw over it to try to rationalize putting the scenes in the film from an intellectual yeah. standpoint as part of the campaign to make this film to be out, uh, out to be an intellectual film, which it's not. Uh, you know, uh, these incongruities that you point out are, of course, obviously and blatantly there. <laughs> but you know, this film would not get nearly as much attention if it didn't have these uh, these sex scenes in it that go beyond what you would normally see in a in a standard American genre fair picture in this uh, in this genre. You wouldn't see something like this in Murder on the Orient Express. You wouldn't see something like this in a, a standard murder mystery. So look, you know, it must something must be going on here because why would these people who have shot this film in this way, these great actors and actresses, why would they appear in this film if the sex didn't have a purpose or a function to it? Yeah. So yeah. You're, you're left to just try to come up with a rationalization for it, which in the very, very worst French art house films, that's what 
ends up happening. They throw this stuff in to make it fit in with the genre, but it doesn't say anything interesting. It's just there to make the film come off as one of these important intellectual films that you have to take seriously. At least the French, when they do it, it's like they're French. You know what I mean? It's like... I don't mind when French people put... And then you come up with some cultural <laughs> rationalization, like, well, they're just doing that because they're French. No, they're doing it because then you'll talk about the fact that that's in the movie and then you'll go see it. It has a commercial function. Just because they say it in French doesn't mean it doesn't have that commercial function. Oh, no. The French are in capitalism, too. No. <laughs> as much as they dress it up and pretend that they're not. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You've, you've gone full on Frankfurt school and like everything is just sort of morbidly depressing and, and, and awful. Some, <laughs> yeah. I mean, just. Well, to, that's what a film like this makes me do. It makes me, you know, it, yeah. it puts you in a very negative uh, mindset, I think, because it. Uh, <laughs> It makes you wonder how many other films that have these tropey features that are designed to make you take it seriously are similarly vacuous. And, and people lob that accusation at films of this type all the time. And we have to go, no, no, you're missing that it really does have something interesting to say. And a film like this that is being treated as a serious film makes you wonder if all those times when you've defended other movies that do these things, uh, if you've been the one who's been the sucker all along. Oh, my goodness it, me. It makes you feel silly for taking film seriously. That's what it does. Wow. It's, yeah. I, I don't like this film. I do not like it. <laughs> well, I'm sorry for suggesting it. I, I suggested it, like I say, not on the basis of anything, just that I, people were talking about it, which is precisely... I think it's a valuable conversation for us to have. No, I agree. I, I'm glad that we're talking about it. I agree. I, I'm, not, I'm not against that. But we, it's not a good movie. We don't have to like every film we discuss. You know, this is... <laughs> right. That, that would be banal and... Uh, you know, cheap. Um, and people need the surprise once in a while of, oh, wow, on the lack they're doing, you know, Saltburn. Do they like Saltburn? And then they go click on it, right? In a way, Saltburn <laughs> has the same function for us, oh, no. which those scenes have for Saltburn. It's, oh, wow, they're talking about the film with all the weird sex in it. I wonder what they say about that. And then you get more clicks on the episode. Well, you know, it uh, has that function think, too. This, Maybe that's the real reason we did it. Oh, no, probably. <laughs> no, well, I, I got seduced by the seduction around the silliness of the thing, you know? I was like, oh, da, 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 da. You know, holiday season. That's how this this stuff functions. It's how it's it worms its way in in places it does not belong. No, well, fair <laughs> enough. I mean, probably our ten loyal listeners will, you know, hopefully hang on to the end so they can find out what we did think about the sex scenes, which was that they were irrelevant and put in only to pretend that this film had any intellectual I mean if, if you think that maybe there was something to them I would well, certainly I was hear an argument. I mean I was trying I suppose but they but it doesn't make but you're right I mean they are incongruous and not in a good way they're not they're not open-ended and ambivalent and ambiguous they're just shoved in because they're faintly transgressive and the one with the bathwater is just really really heavy-handed oh yeah he's you know trying to get the scraps off the table of this guy he's willing to you know embrace his wonderful anything even vaguely associated with him he's just a moth attracted to shiny stuff i mean if that's true about him then what's the point of this movie <laughs> you know why make a movie about a moth that's attracted to shiny things well, I mean, they, what's so interesting about that kind of character? 
I mean, I suppose, you know, in the in the Highsmith version of this, Ripley, you know, ends up being a better version because he's studied it more, you know, like to actually emulate the thing you desire and to become it properly. You know, that's an interesting thing. I mean, I have a friend who was grew up somewhere really poor in the north of England, started doing heroin as a teenager. And then, like, one day just decided that he was going to reinvent himself. He stopped doing heroin. He moved to London. He started wearing suits. He became like a dandy, right? Like somebody who just had this appearance of somebody else. And he acted like a perfect gentleman. And he, he sort of became this person. And he completely reinvented himself, you know. And it wasn't until, yeah, like, two, three years after knowing him that he told me that he'd decided to do this basically to like break with his past to move to become this new person and what was his ultimate reason what was it that he hoped to obtain by becoming this other person i think what he was interested in i haven't seen him for a few years now but i i would say he wanted to be around a certain kind of charm and dignity and and he thought that the best way to get there was to produce it in himself. And to be to be clear and to be fair, he ended up befriending an awful lot of famous people. People in the theater, writers, and, you know, just by being this character and creating this persona and being very charming and looking very good, like he was a handsome man, but he dressed very smartly, which is you know, and not just smartly, like stylishly, you know, like he had the right kind of suit, the right kind of handkerchief. Like he smoked these Russian cigars that were like black with a gold tip or, you know, like he had all these affectations that he managed to make seem natural because he'd practiced them so much in a way. So it sounds to me like he really was a lover of beauty after a fashion yeah. and that he viewed this way of living as a beautiful way of living. And so he he imitated it until he could possess in some way the beauty for himself. And that's, you know, that's an appreciation for beauty, which, you know, is not the good in itself, but it is it is something. There's something to that. You know, or in Gatsby, when Gatsby reinvents himself, you think, well, is it because he wants to have big parties? Well, is mm -hmm. it because he wants to be accepted by the old money people? Well, not even that. He only wants to be accepted by the old money people insofar as he can access this woman that he loves, that he has built up in his mind to be an image of, of something. And that's ultimately when people go to all this trouble, there's something that they think is is really wonderful or good or sublime that they're trying to get and trying to possess and have. Uh, and it's it's not just the house. No. The house is an intermediary step toward that thing. In this film, it's just a house. Yeah. That's all he really wants. Yeah. It's badly done, isn't it? I, I ultimately agree with you. I think you convinced me on this one. Yes. <laughs> I've won Nina over. <laughs> Not that I think she was that far from my position to start with. <laughs> anyway, we're going to go do the B-side now. So thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.